So as our ushers come and we pass out the offering plates, we're so grateful for you. Um, Luke mentioned, uh, Luke actually commanded you, if you're new or visiting, to fill out a, <laughs> a, new, a welcome card. Um, so it is in the seat back in front of you. Um, so yeah, fill that out and throw it in there. The greatest joy I get is to have coffee with those who are new to our church. And so last week I got to hang out with Nora and learn her story. And it was just, it was wonderful. And so I just would love the chance to, to be able to hang out and connect with you. Uh, both Paul and I do that regularly. And it's the joy of being um, in a small church. So if you are new or visiting with us this morning, while the offering plate is being passed out, let me, um, let me introduce you to who we are and what we believe. Um, there's three things that we believe. Number one, we believe that there is hope beyond our brokenness. All of us have a story of being broken. Like I talked about in last week's sermon, all of us have a story of grief and loss where we encountered the malevolence and brokenness of this world. And the hope that we have is that our future is defined by Jesus and what he does and is doing on our behalf. It's not defined on what's been done to us or the mistakes that we've made. Our future is defined by God. And therefore, we can be honest about where we are in our life, our doubts, our, our failures. And at the same time, then that allows us to be able to say, and my future is defined by Jesus, not by about the mistakes that I've made. Does that make sense? Second, we believe that we are called, as we do that, to trust in our risen Savior. And Jesus is alive. He's here right now by his presence. He's alive in this place by his Holy Spirit. And we get to have a relationship with him. So we don't perform for Jesus. We don't tick off the box of all the good deeds for Jesus. We have a relationship with Jesus where we listen and we speak. And like Mary and Martha last week, we can fall at Jesus' feet and lament we can be angry, we can be frustrated, and we can trust because we know that he is good. Amen? Yes. Third, we believe that we're called to bring restoration. So right now, in the middle of your pain, in the middle of your brokenness, in the middle of the, your life, wherever you are in your life, even in your great joy, God wants to use you to be a blessing to your family and to your neighbor and to this community and to this nation and world. You do not have to wait for your life to be put together in order to make a difference. And to prove to you to this, on September 17th, we're going to have a meeting of, of parents who have junior hires and high schoolers and even older elementary kids. And we're going to take all of, all of these, these molting children. We're going to take all of them on a mission trip. We're going to decide where to go. And so we're all going to get together, all of us parents who have no idea how to raise teenagers, and all of these hormonal, pubescent people, right? These amazing people, and, and we're going to go make a difference together. Now, it, if they can do it, so can you. Amen? So that's what we're called to do as a church. That's what we believe. That's the ark that we find in Scripture, and that's what we believe as a church. Each one of these truths has a decision that comes with it. So let's say this together like we do every week. A disciple is one who walks intentionally with God, choosing to be changed by Jesus, 
choosing to seek Jesus first and choosing to join. That's right, baby, to join Jesus in his resurrection work. One day I'll get that slide changed, but it's too much fun not having it. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for you today. We're so grateful for your presence here in worship. We're grateful for the peace that we feel. Lord, I bind up and silence everything opposed to Christ that would be seeking to interfere with this time now in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. We pray your protection over this space and this time, Lord Jesus, as we open up your word. May you use my words um, to be a blessing. Help, Lord Jesus. And all God's precious saints said, amen. So we've been in the Gospel of John, and we're in John chapter 11. And we'll finish out the Gospel of John uh, in this fall. Uh, we'll be done this fall. And so last week, I wanted to slow it down just a little bit to talk about the power of Mary and Martha in their grief. Last week, we talked about how Martha falls on her knees at Jesus' feet and says, God, Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then she, so that's her lament. That's her anger. That's her frustration. That's her grief. And then she says at the exact same time, but I know that you can do anything. And so she is like that song that we sang. She's waiting here for Jesus. Like she knows that Jesus can show up. She knows that he's capable. And so, so she, she speaks to Jesus her trust in him. And they have this amazing interaction where Jesus goes, your brother's going to rise again. And Martha says, ah, well, I know, you know, like at the end of time. And Jesus says, no, like now, but you need to know that I am the resurrection and the life. And Jesus says, do you believe this? And Martha says, I believe. I know that you are the resurrection and the life. And it's this amazing moment between Jesus and Martha. Then Martha goes back to her sister and says, their brother's still dead and they're still wrecked and they're still weeping and their financial future is up in the air and their whole life is in chaos. And Martha goes back to Mary and says, the teacher's looking for you. And Mary then falls down at Jesus' feet. And this is what Mary says. Read with me, John chapter 11, verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's the end of her sentence. There's no admission of faith. There's no trust. Or there's no, she's not speaking her confidence in Jesus. But we said last week, and I'll affirm it again this week, this is faith too. Why? Because both Martha and Mary bring their deepest lament to Jesus. That's faith. It's not about having all the right answers all the time. Sometimes life just knocks the wind out of you. And you don't have the answers. Sometimes you show up to church and you don't have any words to sing. And so you need people to sing for you. But you're here. Sometimes when you pray, uh, there's just a groan and you don't have any words, but you're praying. That's faith. Faith is, is, is not this religious concept where everything is perfect in your life and you're living in victory and your eyebrows are always trimmed. <laughs> right? That's not faith. That's performance. That's you constantly trying to inflate this this person that is okay all the time. 
And Jesus is constantly trying to deflate that person because this, this inflatable person can't receive love, nor can it give love. It's only an image. It's only a, it's only a persona. It's only a reputation. And we're not interested in that. We're interested in falling at Jesus' feet and saying, I have nothing but doubt and anger and frustration right now. And that is a relationship that is trust, that is based on trust. That's faith. Does that make sense? So grief, the second thing that happens, I want you to just notice, notice Mary's body. What does she do? She falls at Jesus' feet. Um, one, of the, one of the unfortunate consequences of living in the modern American era is that we carried a Greek idea forward that our bodies don't matter all that much. And we're learning as a nation right now, like literally right now, that, that we are actually people who live in bodies. Did you know that? Shocking, right? <gasps> for, for decades, uh, over 150 years, we've been a nation that has decided that we can think our way through things. And, and that, is, that is not a Trinitarian understanding of who we are. We're made in God's image. We have a mind like our Heavenly Father. We have a spirit like the Holy Spirit. And we have a body like Jesus. So this is really important for you. When you grieve, when you're going through something difficult, I've heard it over and over and over again from your precious uh, lips. What you've told me over and over and over again is that you, sometimes you feel like a failure when you grieve and when it shows up in your body. Like, I, sh I shouldn't feel this stressed, or I shouldn't feel this tired, or I shouldn't feel like this angry, or I shouldn't feel confused, you know, or, you know, I, should, I shouldn't cry, I should be over this. Like, why is this... And all you're doing is shooting on yourself. <laughs> Preach it, right? <laughs> Don't should on yourself. Here's the thing that modern neurologists and psychologists say. Um, so your emotions, especially grief, grief is a massive bundle of emotions. Grief shows up in your body. Uh, anxiousness shows up in your body. When I get anxious, I get anxious in my stomach, right here at the top of my stomach. Where do you get anxious? Some people are pointing to their chest. Do me a favor. Take your right hand and put it on the place of your body when you get anxious. Is it in your stomach? Is it in your hand? Is it in your head? Is it in your back? Right? If you're old, it's in your knees. That's when... <laughs> right? It's right there, right? And this is, here's the trick. I'm going to teach you, I'm going to teach you something. This is really important. If you want to control your anxiousness, if you want to control your grief, if you want to be connected to your body, right, what you do is you say, right now, I'm feeling, you know, anxious, mad, bad, sad, glad, afraid, name the feeling, in my body, and then name it at a scale of 1 to 10, right? A 3, an 11, right? Whatever it is. And so that's really helpful. Like right now, I'm feeling joyful in my chest at about a 9, watching you all do this. <laughs> right? That's good. 
The thing about emotion is that once you speak it, it passes. Have you ever been in that moment when like, when you're like having a party and you're like, I'm so excited. And then all of a sudden that feeling of excitement goes away. You ever done that? That's because you've spoken the emotion, and when you speak the emotion, it passes. So all of the difficult emotions that you've labeled as bad, they're not bad, they're just value neutral. Those difficult emotions, they can pass if you speak them, and they will pass sooner if you place your hand on your body where it shows up in your body, and it affirms the fact that you are made in the image of God. Mary falls at her feet because her grief is coming out of her body. And she's bawling at the feet of Jesus. Verse 33, let's read this together. When Jesus saw her weeping. So Mary has awesome friends. They're weeping with her. He was indignant in spirit and troubled. Huh. I didn't know what indignant means, so I looked it up. Here's, here, here's, the, here's the definition. Indignant, Webster says this. Indignant is... The feeling or showing anger or annoyance at is what is perceived as unfair treatment. And, and the root of this is Latin, and it, in means not, dignus means worthy, like dignity. So when someone who is worthy of love and care, which is all y'all, is then not treated that way, being indignant is being angry that someone who's worthy of care is not treated as of that way. Does that make sense? Or as I wrote it, anger that someone worthy of love is harmed or mistreated. So Jesus is angry that Mary and Martha have to go through all this pain because they are worthy of better, of more. Jesus is indignant that Lazarus is dead because he's worthy of more. Jesus gets angry when you are hurt because you're worthy of love and peace and joy. It pains God's heart. It brings God to tears when, when someone hurts us, when we're betrayed when the brokenness of this fallen world shatters our bodies and our dreams. Do you understand that? God's not way out there looking at us in the distance. God is right here, present in your life, aware of what you're going through, and it makes him angry when you get hurt because you are so valuable to him. Verse 34, Jesus says, where have you laid him? He asked. And they say, come and see. And then Jesus bawled. So what does God do when you're full of grief and sorrow? When you're confused or scared? When you're afraid? When you're depressed? When you're stressed out? What does God do? What does he do? Yes. When your heart breaks, it breaks his heart. When you're in grief, he's with you, feeling that with you. You're not alone. You feel alone, but you're not alone. And God, at the exact same time, is also going to work behind the scenes to create something beautiful out of something so terrible. 
And this is what this story is all about. I just love it. Verse 36. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. See how Jesus loved Lazarus. And, and some of them are just in awe of Jesus. They're looking at Jesus and they're going, this is the biggest celebrity we've ever seen in a hundred years in Israel. And he loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus. These just these, you know, Lazarus was a plumber, you know, Mary was an HR specialist. Martha was a toll booth operator. I mean, these people like, they're just normal people, right? And Jesus just adores them. And he shows up and he was weeping for them. He's angry that they're hurt. And these Jews are going, oh my God, the friends of Mary and Martha are like, Jesus loves them so much. And it's bringing them to tears. But not everyone sees the same thing that this group does. There's other people there, and they have a much different reaction. Read with me. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man kept this man from dying? This is the lament and complaint of everyone on this planet who has experienced a terrible loss. And God's presence in the midst of their loss seems so frustrating, so irritating, because God didn't intervene and prevent this catastrophe from happening. We've all experienced this. Amen? That means I agree. All of us have been through loss. And I'm probably wrong, but I'll, I'll say this. All of us have at one time prosecuted God in our minds when we've experienced a loss like this. And what we do is the prosecutor, judge, jury, and executioner, because that feels like a big, powerful role. That, that's me being judge of the world and judge of myself. It, it's a terrible sentence for m me to endure, but sometimes that happens. I take on that role, and what I do is that I give God three horrific sentences. First is that the judgment is, well, God, either you don't love me, and that's why this happened, or God, you're impotent to do anything about this pain and suffering, so you choose which sentence you want. That's how we line up the, this prosecution. Or if we're feeling especially frisky, we'll give God a third judgment, which is even worse, which is, God, you can do something about pain, and you do love people, but this is evidence that you don't love me. So which is of those three sentences do you want to embrace, God? And that's how we prosecute God in our mind. This is so human. Like, we all do this. And what we're doing is that we're trying to figure out why this has happened. Why did this tragedy happen? Why, why was there a bomb in, at a wedding in Kabul yesterday? Why are there shootings? Why are there tsunamis that kill 250,000 Indonesians? Why are there... Why? Right? Why, why, why? We're, we're trying to get down to the bottom of these very, very difficult questions. 
And, and at the same time, we're trying to hold on to a, a God who is almighty and at the same time good. And so as we try and get, take these two questions down to their roots, and we ask the question, why did this happen? Yeah. <laughs> then what we discover is that there are no satisfactory answers. The reason why, ironically, I think the reason why the why question has no answers is because it's the wrong question. So let me pull back just a little bit and give you, um, give you some philosophy. The modern era has created the expectation that we can answer all questions with the aid of such marvelous rational tools as science, math, philosophy, and technology. And so all of these incredible tools, science, math, technology, philosophy, they measure the material world. They measure what we can see and touch and taste and smell and, and, and weigh, okay? And so we ask a question and we say, what is this thing or phenomenon? And we get an answer. These incredible tools called science and math and philosophy and rationality and technology, they give us answers. And I'm so grateful for those answers because I like having a heater in my house and I like driving a car and I like having a phone, which also is my calendar. And I like modern medicine and, and you know, I like this world. Amen. So science and rationality and math and technology, they're all beautiful, wonderful gifts, and they help us understand what a thing is and how it works. Does that make sense? Okay, but the question of suffering and God doesn't play by these rules because the core issue isn't a what or a how. The core issue is a who. Does that make sense? It's a who. The question of suffering and God is about my heart and God's heart. Two things which cannot be measured by the wonderful rational tools of the modern era. Does that make sense? So the question is, who is this God that can allow such a suffering? What does God do when I suffer? The question is, who am I to this God? Those are questions we can answer. Those are questions the text gives us answers to. That is, an, that, that, that is something that we can work with. Does that make sense? So let's find out. Ready? Verse 38. Read with me. Jesus, once more deeply moved, that means indignant. Once more, he's, he's angry that Lazarus and Mary and Martha are in pain, but Lazarus is dead and Mary and Martha are suffering. He came to the tomb. Read with me. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Get the image in your mind. Jesus shows up. It's the side of a hill. There's a big stone that's laid and it's sealed with wax, right? And some hemp rope around there for good reason. Jesus was ready to act. Verse 39. Read this with me. Take away the stone, he said. Wait, what? Dig up that grave. Martha, trying to be helpful, begins to educate Jesus a little bit about kind of how biology works in a body after it dies. 
she says, uh, but <laughs> Lord, um, by this time, there's a really bad odor. Like he's, he's been dead for four days. He's not mostly dead. <laughs> right? It's not like the Princess Bride and Miracle Max, you know, is, oh, to blave. Oh, I, yeah. No, no. He's not mostly dead, right? He's all the way dead and has been dead for four days, and he stinks. So let me pause here for a moment. Let's let Martha's astute observations sink in. What's the lesson that we learn? Death stinks. <laughs> Say that with me. Death stinks. More specifically, my death stinks. Dare I risk it? Your death smells. Your death stinks. You know this about people in your life, right? They have a little bit of death in their life. There's something off about what they're doing, about what they're saying, about their actions, about their thinking, and you can smell it, can't you? Oh, no. And no matter how you perfume it, no matter how well you clothe yourself, no matter how many showers that you take, if you have death in your life, it stinks. Last weekend, April and I were in Modesto for her grandfather's um, funeral. And it was a sweet time with their family. Grandpa was 96 years old, lived a long, full, wonderful life. It was a great celebration. No, we did not dig up his body. But I got to tell you, I forgot a really important lesson, and that is the Central Valley in Modesto in August. It's hot. Like, y'all, it's, it's really hot. And on the Central Coast, it's not hot, right? So if I forget deodorant for a day on the Central Coast, I'm fine. And I forgot my deodorant. And I'm driving, and all of a sudden, I'm smelling. And April looks at me and goes, oh, no. And I'm like, I know, baby, it's bad. She goes, we got we to gotta, we gotta do something about this. So we stop at Rite Aid, and we get, you know, some deodorant, right? It was an old spice called Swagger. So, okay. So, so I put on the old spice. Now, guess what I smelled like? Nope. I smelled like stink with added flavor. That's what I smelled like. Stinky swagger. <laughs> and this, but this is our strategy with our life. This is what we do. I don't want to change. I don't want, this, I don't want to confront the death that is in me. I don't want to repent. I don't want to deal with the thing that I know that is off. So I'll perfume it. I'll just put some swagger on it. It's not working. It just smells like stink with swagger. That's all. And you need to know, like, Jesus isn't interested in perfuming you. He's interested in making the dead parts of your heart fully alive. And yeah, so you won't think anymore. But more importantly, you'll be alive. 
Verse 40. And Jesus says to Martha, who's just educated him on the dead body stink, Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? You remember from last week, the glory of God is the weight of his goodness. That's what glory means. The weight and presence of God's overwhelming love and goodness. And, and the weight of God's goodness is when he makes dead people alive. When he finds lost people. Amen? That's when we see the, his glory, the weight of his goodness. Verse 41, read with me. So they took away the stone, and then Jesus looked up and said, Okay, I thank you that you have heard me. This is so important. Jesus has been praying about this for days. God hears your prayers even when they're not answered right away. Second, 42, I knew that you always hear me. Some of you doubt that God has heard you in the past. Do not doubt this. God hears your prayers. No matter how feeble they are, sometimes it feels like they don't get through the ceiling, right? They do. Jesus continues, but I said this for the benefit of the people sitting here at Coastal Community Church, that they may believe that you sent me. So what Jesus is praying, he's saying, Lord, what I'm about to do is for the sake of everybody in this room. Verse 43, when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus said, no, I like it in here. I'm comfortable. Leave me alone. I smell. No, he didn't say that, even though we do at times. I just love this. Jesus speaks to a dead man, which doesn't make sense because dead people can't hear, right? So that means that in, when Jesus speaks to you, he's literally giving you life. When Jesus speaks, it brings to life. It brings dead things to life. This is why we encourage you to pray and hear from Jesus. Because only Jesus can bring you back to life. So Jesus calls Lazarus by name and the dead man becomes alive. He can hear. That'd be an odd sensation. All of a sudden, you can hear. You feel yourself breathing again. And it's dark. But there's light over here because the entrance to the cave has been removed. And you're all wrapped up. And it smells. Jesus speaks, and a putrefied dead body is now totally renewed, resurrected. He's alive, but this guy is still stuck in a cave, in a shelf, wrapped in grave cloth, so he's not quite living yet. Amen? So, but Jesus gets to that, verse 44, read with me. The dead man came out. Wait a minute, what's his name? What is he named here? Ah, yeah. uh -huh. pay attention. We're going to find out why. Read with me from the beginning again. The dead man came out. 
his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Remember what Martha said to Jesus about death? Say it with me. Death. Lazarus is no longer dead. So his body is alive and it no longer stinks. But what is he wrapped in? He's wrapped in cloths and grave cloths that stink. And his hands and his feet and his head are all wrapped in these stinky grave cloths. There's been many times when I trust Jesus and he says to me, he speaks to me and that dead part of my heart becomes alive, but it's still wrapped in the old habits of my dead life. Does that make sense? You getting the metaphor? Because the old life, the old habits, the old way of thinking that was associated with the dead living, the, my dead living, that was strips of linen, they're still wrapped around me. And so you would think then that what Jesus would say next would be, Andy or Lazarus, um, unwrap yourself. Take off those stinky grave cloths. That's not you anymore. You're not dead. You don't smell like death. Come out of there. That would make sense. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says something else even more profound. Next verse. Jesus said to them, said to who? To them. Not to the dead man, but to his friends and family. Take off the grave cloths and let him go. Tenderly, carefully, they unwrapped Lazarus. You know what this means for Lazarus? As those old cloths get unraveled from his body, all over his body. He's standing there in front of his friends and family and Jesus, and he's being unwrapped. When they're done, he will be naked. Alive and totally vulnerable. And this is why oftentimes we don't want other people closest to us and we don't want help from our friends and our family to take off these grave clothes. We can't do it by ourselves. We need help. But what we do is we're terrified of being exposed. We're terrified of being vulnerable. But to experience the life that Jesus offers is the process to be a Christian, is the process of you finding trusted family and friends to talk about your old habits your old dead way of living that seems to be creeping into your life and saying, I don't want to do that anymore. Would you help me take this off? And they will help you. 
And it requires all of your courage. Because yes, you're alive, but you will be vulnerable and exposed. Of course, what you forget is the person standing across from you that is helping you has also been exposed. And that is the beauty of this church. That's what I've seen week after week, year after year, is that you continually sign up and say, yes, I'm willing to pray through this. Yes, I'm willing to talk through this. Yes, I'm willing to deal with this. And that's why the Holy Spirit is here powerfully in the presence of this church. You've done this work and you continue to do this work. And I'm so excited for you. So I'm wondering if you might be willing to do something dangerous with me right now. Could we reject the lie that it's our job to take our own grave clothes off? Can we reject the lie that we're supposed to do all of this on our own and receive the truth that we get each other? Can we do that? Okay, repeat after me. Jesus, I reject the lie that I have to take my own grave clothes off. And Jesus, I receive the community that you've given me to help me. And I can ask for help. Amen? Amen. Last thought. It's interesting that the process that Jesus takes Lazarus through for his resurrection and life, it's the same process which gets us through our grief. In our grief, we need our Savior and our friends to sit with us, to listen to us, to suffer alongside of us. That's how we get through grief. And it's the same way that we experience resurrection and life. We need our Savior and our friends to sit with us, to listen to us, and unravel the grave clothes with us. Isn't that fascinating? That the way that we get through grief is the same way that we experience the resurrection and the life that Jesus offers us. Together with Jesus and our friends, we do this work together. Why is that? The reason why it goes back to the problem of how to understand evil and suffering in God because the greatest answers to the questions that we have in life is not a what or a how, but a who. That's why. Who is this God? Who is this God that would bring me back to life? Who is this God that would resurrect my dead heart? Who is this God that would choose me? Who is this God that when I'm dead and stinky and can't do anything to help him, he says, I want to exchange places with him. I want to exchange places with her. That's my girl. That's my boy. That's who God is. That's who Jesus is. He looks at you in all of your grief and all of your deadness and all of your failure and all of your sorrow and all of your great beauty. And he says, that's my precious one, worthy of love, worthy of life. And he chooses to exchange places with you. And on the cross, he dies the death that you should have died. And he raises again so that, so that that life that he has, he now can give to you. That's who God is. That's what God does in the middle of our grief. Who is this Jesus? He's the king of kings who humbles himself 
to bring you back to life. Your sin is great. His love is greater. That's our king. That's our savior. See, when we go through grief and loss in this life, we don't go through it alone. We don't go through it knowing that it'll never be restored. We go through it with the hope that Jesus is present with us, suffering alongside of us, feeling what we feel, but more importantly, doing something, working behind the scenes to bring life out of our brokenness and death. And one day, dear friends, one day there will be no more sorrow and no more tears and no more suffering. All of this will pass away and we will be with Jesus forever. And I'm wondering right now if there's a part of your heart that's been dead for a while, if you could trust that dead part of your heart to this Jesus and his great love for you. Would you be willing to do that? Let's pray. God, I keep on trying to unravel the grave cloth by myself. I keep on trying to bring myself back to life. But I can't do it. I'm blind. My hands and feet are bound. I'm dead. Today we've sung and heard a message from your scripture that brings hope in the middle of our brokenness that might help us trust you, Jesus, our risen Savior. And so that's what we want to do right now. We hand these deeply wounded places of our life, these doubts, this grief, these hopes over to you. We trust you, Jesus. We can't, we can't make ourselves alive. Only you can do that. You are our resurrection and life. So Jesus, forgive us for our sins. Make your home in our hearts and in our living. And thank you for this community, the trusted saints that you've put in our life that would help us unravel those grave cloths. We're willing to come out. We say yes. And all God's precious beloved children said,